We're continuing in the story of Joseph, and today we'll be looking primarily at chapters 44 and 45, but I want to read for us from Acts chapter 7, where the martyr Stephen is looking back and telling this story. So he says, because the patriarchs, that is the, the 12 sons of Israel, of Jacob, were jealous of Joseph, they sold him as a slave into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him from all his troubles. He gave Joseph wisdom and enabled him to gain the goodwill of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So he made him ruler over Egypt and all his palace. Then a famine struck all Egypt and Canaan, bringing great suffering, and our fathers couldn't find food. When Jacob heard there was grain in Egypt, he sent our fathers on their first visit. On their second visit, Joseph told his brothers who he was, and Pharaoh learned about Joseph's family. After this, Joseph sent for his father Jacob and his whole family, 75 in all. Then Jacob went down to Egypt, where he and our fathers died. You've got to know this. God means what he says. So he, this is the prophet Isaiah. Just as rain and snow descend from the skies and don't go back until they've watered the earth, doing their work of making things grow and blossom, producing seed for farmers and food for the hungry, so will the words that come out of my mouth not come back empty-handed. They'll do the work I sent them to do. They'll complete the assignment I gave them. God means what he says. What I've said, that will I bring about. What I've planned, that will I do. Now that should give us great confidence. God doesn't make empty promises. That should give us real pause. God doesn't issue empty warnings. He's not the kind of parent who's always saying, if you don't stop that right now, you're going to be punished, and then does nothing. He means what he says. In a sense, that's what the story of Joseph is all about. It wasn't just Joseph who was being tested, though he was, and it wasn't just his brothers who were being tested when they went to Egypt to buy grain, though they were. It was the very faithfulness of God that was called into question. He had promised to bless the whole earth, all the peoples of the earth, through the offspring of Abraham. But the offspring of Abraham weren't cooperating. In fact, they had undermined the promise at almost every turn. Under those circumstances, would God still keep his word? But God means what he says. And he only says what he means. So through Isaiah, he bluntly says, I've said it, I'll most certainly do it. I've planned it, so it's as good as done. Now let me remind you of what's happened so far in the story. Joseph was born into a large, blended, and extremely dysfunctional family. He had ten older half-brothers and one younger full brother. But Joseph was dad's favorite. When he was 17 and far away from home, nine of his brothers sold him to human traffickers who took him to Egypt where he was enslaved. And Joseph's life there was full of ups and downs, but mostly downs for about 13 years. Through a series of coincidences, not accidents, he was eventually freed from slavery and elevated to a position of great authority, became the chief administrator of a nationwide famine relief program, and he served in that position for over a decade. Because of his wise administration, Egypt had grain when none of the nations surrounding them did. 
when his ten older brothers came from one of those surrounding nations, from Canaan, to buy Egyptian grain. Now, they have no idea Joseph is still alive. He recognized them immediately, but they didn't recognize him. Two decades, not to mention a long stint in prison, had completely changed Joseph's looks. As soon as he realized his brothers didn't know him, he decided he was going to put them to a test. He wanted to see if they were still the same angry, selfish people they were years earlier, or if they changed. So he accused them on the spot of being spies. And though they vehemently denied it, he had them taken into custody. Now there's 10 brothers there, his 10 older half-brothers. Three days later, he released all but one of the brothers, whom he kept as a hostage. He went ahead and he sold them a little grain, but he solemnly swore to them that he would keep their brother a prisoner. He would not be released under any circumstances unless they returned with proof that their story was legitimate, that they weren't spies. And that proof consisted of bringing their younger brother, his only full brother, back with them. They had once abandoned Joseph to a terrible fate. Now he wanted to see if, given the opportunity, they would do the same thing to their other brother. Hadn't they changed? So he sold his brother's grain and sent them on their way, insisting that they bring back to him their younger brother, whom he hadn't seen for over 20 years. They went home to their dad and told him what the Egyptian official had said to them. Dad, we've got to take Benjamin back or he'll never let Simeon go. But their dad, Jacob, absolutely refused. There was no way he was going to send Benjamin to Egypt, not for Simeon, not for anything else. When we left Joseph last week, the brothers had returned a second time, but only because they'd run out of grain and their families were in danger of starving. Nothing else could induce their dad into letting their baby brother go back. Now, as soon as Joseph saw them, he launched stage two of his plan. You see, even though they'd come back with Benjamin, he didn't trust them. He knew they hadn't come back to free Simeon. They'd come back because they'd run out of food. Did they care at all about their brother or just about their bellies? Joseph had no way of knowing that they wanted to come back, but that their dad wouldn't let them. As far as he knew, they would have let their brother rot in prison. So he implemented this second test. In this test, he treated his brother's well, and he acted like everything was fine. They'd brought their brother back. He released Simeon. In fact, he had them brought to his home for dinner, and then he sent them on their way in peace. But while the dinner was wrapping up, he had one of his own people plant evidence in Benjamin's things. Then a little while after they were gone, he sent an officer after them to stop them and accuse them of theft. The officers told the brothers, someone stole a very valuable item. And if it's found on one of you, that person's going to be enslaved for the rest of his life. Of course, the brothers all denied it. And it was ridiculous. They were honest people. It's kind of humorous, isn't it? They were honest people. But the item was found in Benjamin's bag. So here was the test. Simeon, who was one of the original conspirators his next oldest brother, was free, but Benjamin was about to be enslaved. Would the brothers just say, 
better him than us and go back home? If so, Joseph would let them go. What did he want to do with those guys? Joseph's officers took Benjamin into custody and told the brothers that they wouldn't be held responsible. They were free to go. They could have washed their hands of Benjamin just as they had done of Joseph years before and left for home right then. But instead, they packed up their donkeys and they returned to face the music. When they saw Joseph again, they pled their innocence, but they said something else that went to his heart. To a man, they said, we're innocent, but we won't leave our brother. If he's going to be a slave, we'll be a slave with him. Joseph said, I'd never do that to you. Only the one involved will be my slave. The rest of you are free to go back to your father. Now, this is the pivotal moment of the test. They're free to go if they will abandon their brother. And that's probably what Joseph expected them to do. After all, they'd done it to him. As far as he could tell, they'd done it to Simeon. But the brothers chose loyalty above liberty. Judah, now he's the brother with the gift for talking people into what he wants. The one who more than 20 years ago had talked his brothers into selling Joseph to human traffickers. Judah said to him, we can't go back. We can't go back to our father without Benjamin. Dad loves him more than anything. It would kill him if we left the boy here. So here's the deal. I'll take his place. Let me stay here as your slave, not the boy. Let the boy go back with his brothers. How can I go back to my father if the boy isn't with me? Oh, don't make me go back and watch my father die in grief. By the way, I think Judah was a great actor. He meant it, but he just had that way of expressing things that got through to people. Now, Joseph had once pleaded with Judah not to sell him to human traffickers, but Judah wouldn't listen. He had no mercy. And now two decades later, the shoe, the proverbial shoe is on the other foot. It's Judah's turn to do the pleading, but he's not pleading for himself. He's trying to save his little brother from a life of slavery. He even begs to be able to take his place. Now, remember, Joseph is a very emotional guy. I mentioned last week that he seems to cry more often than anyone else, male or female, in the whole Bible. Right now, he is being battered by a cataract of human emotion. Fear and sadness so flood the room that Joseph feels like he's going to drown in it. And suddenly, he shouts out in Egyptian, Get out of the room, all of you! His shout startles everyone. The Egyptian servers and the attendants look up. They have no idea what's going on, but they immediately head for the doors. And Joseph is left alone with his brothers. Now, if you think the Egyptians were surprised, try putting yourself in Joseph's brother's shoes. Their youngest brother has just been accused of stealing, and a life sentence hangs over his head. Judah has been pleading with this fearsome Egyptian for his brother's release and has even begged to take his place. But as Judah begins to feel like he's finally getting through to this Egyptian who's been listening intently, intensely even, the man suddenly shouts something at the top of his lungs. The Hebrews don't understand what he said. They don't know Egyptian. But everyone else heads for the door. For a second, the brothers' hearts stop beating. And then they start beating like a drum corps. They stand perfectly still, but their minds are racing. 
They hardly dare to breathe as that mighty Egyptian paces back and forth around the room like some kind of lion. But as soon as all the attendants are out of the room and the doors are closed and only the brothers are left with him, the man does something totally unexpected. He cries. And he's not just crying, he's sobbing. He's wailing at the top of his voice. It's the most bewildering thing they've ever seen. They look at each other. They look around the room. They look back at him. The scene is totally surrealistic. When the great man finally stops sobbing, he says something in a choked voice in Hebrew. In Hebrew. All this time, he's been speaking to them through an interpreter. But now he speaks in Hebrew, and he says the last thing they would ever expect him to say. I'm Joseph. Now, I don't think most of them grasped what he was saying. I mean, the name Joseph must have been like a jolt of electricity, but I doubt it registered. They're still wondering how this Egyptian learned to speak Hebrew so quickly. Their brains are firing, their hearts are pounding, but they haven't put it all together yet. Then Joseph asked them if his father was still living, which was a way of saying, how's my father doing? The truth's beginning to dawn on some of them, but others are still confused, wondering why he's asking them how his father is doing. How would they know? So Joseph tells them, and of course he's speaking perfect Hebrew, to come close. Imagine that unnerved them. Some scholars think, and it may be so, that when Joseph called the brothers to come close, it was to prove to them that he really was Joseph. How would he do that? by showing them he was circumcised. That's something that would never be true of an Egyptian, but would be true of Joseph, the son of Israel from the land of Canaan. By the way, I've heard of this from one of my best friends who's a Bengali, and he he told me about an Islamic mob he saw attacking Hindu men and about to beat one man when he warded off the attack by showing them that he was circumcised. So the brothers' minds are reeling from the sudden appearance of their long-lost, presumed dead brother. But as the truth of Joseph's identity begins to sink in, they're confronted with the memory of what they did to him. For more than 20 years, they have carried the guilt of what they'd done. And we've already seen a little bit about what they felt about it. We know that they'd acknowledged their guilt over it, Even Joseph, listening in on the conversation, was aware of it. He knew they felt guilty, but he didn't know whether or not they were repentant. But their willingness to stand by their little brother, and especially Judah's willingness to take Benjamin's punishment on himself, had convinced him. But now the brothers realized they are at the mercy of the man that they had so brutally mistreated. Twenty years ago, they had watched while he was dragged away in terror, They had heard his cries for mercy, and they had turned a deaf ear, maybe even laughed. They had condemned him to a life of slavery in a land of exile, and now they realized that the man they had abused was holding absolute power over them. And he had been playing with them like a cat plays with a mouse. Now, how Joseph came to be here was to them a complete mystery. Why he's acting like an Egyptian, why he has all these servants, how he came to be in a position of such authority, they have no idea. What they do know is that one word from them 
from him, their heads would roll. That's all it would take, a word. And they would be executed or enslaved. Joseph, now remember, Joseph is extremely quick on his feet. Realizes what his brothers are thinking. So he tries to set them at ease. He tells them, don't be distressed and don't be angry with yourselves for selling me here. Because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. Now, don't be angry with yourself. You know, I really doubt that that's what they were worried about. They're worried about his anger, not theirs. But Joseph goes on to explain in great brevity about the famine, his role in the famine relief, how God was using him to save his family from starvation. And think about it, not just his family, but the covenant promise. Look at verses 7 and 8. God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then it wasn't you who sent me here, but God. Now, wait a minute. It wasn't you who sent me here? Maybe they didn't send him here to a place of power and authority, but they sent him away to a life of slavery and imprisonment. Had Joseph forgotten the terror he felt? And the despair? No, he remembered. He remembered what it was like to be utterly rejected. What it was like to have brothers who wished he'd never been born. They had sold him like a farm animal and turned away when he pled with them for his life. And yet now he says, it wasn't you who sent me here, but God. Of course they sent him here. Was he in denial? No, he was living by faith. He knew what his brothers had done, but he didn't stop with that. If he had, he would have remained in the prison even after he'd been released, in the prison of the past. But he had somehow learned that there's only one way to get free of evil, and that is to overcome it with good. This is Miroslav Wolf. To triumph fully, evil needs two victories, not one. To triumph fully, evil needs two victories, not one. The first victory happens when an evil deed is perpetrated. The second victory when evil is returned. After the first victory, evil would die if the second victory did not infuse it with new life. For years, Joseph probably had infused the evil his brothers had done to him with new life by bringing it to mind again and again. But something happened to him. God happened to him. He helped him. Now, if he was like you or me, he probably played this thing out over and over again, played out fantasies of when he would see his brothers again. He imagined ways to pay them back for the evil they'd done. But being stuck in that kind of thinking was every bit as much a prison as being stuck in the dungeon in which he had spent years. And God opened the prison doors for him. Joseph began to see that God could take the evil done to him and incorporate it into his own epic story of righting wrongs and bringing salvation. That is, incorporated into the story of the covenant as he began to realize what the divine author could do with the events of his life, Joseph chose to bring the story of what his brothers had done to him into the story of what God was doing for him 
and through him. That's what faith in God does. It chooses to live out of what God is doing rather than out of what others have done. And so it overcomes evil with good. Now, the same kind of choice is necessary. Every time you, as a follower of Jesus, are unjustly treated, every time you encounter trial and loss, it's then that you have a decision to make to retain ownership of your own story and just try to make it come out right or to hand the pen over to the master. He has the skill to take what has happened to you and incorporate it into his bigger story and use it for some extraordinary turn of plot that will delight his people for an eternity. Once you know that God's hand is on your story, the hardship that's befallen you, the evil done to you, even the evil you have done, once you know God's hand is on your story, you can rest. You can enter Sabbath. You can have peace. The thing over which you've strived for so long begins to lose its power to harm you. And you're set free. And you know what? You can get better and better at handing over your story to the divine author. You can learn to trust God even while the hardship befalls you, even as the justice, injustice is being done to you. Jesus showed us what that looks like. When the soldiers were hammering nails through his hands, he prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He was giving his story into his father's hands. Paul did the same thing when people were taking advantage of his wrongful imprisonment. Because he could give his story to the Father, he said with joy, what's happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Both Jesus and Paul knew how to bring their individual story into God's great story. How to give God the pen. Allow him to do his magic. And you and I can learn that too. It really is possible to live this way. To live free. But it's only possible to the people who give up the rights to their own story, who hand it over to God and ask him to write them into his story. Will you do that? You really can. You don't have to be imprisoned by the past. There's another way to live. Toward the end of Wendell Berry's absolutely remarkable novel, Jaber Crow, the lead character reviews his past and he writes... I can't look back from where I am now and feel that I've been very much in charge of my life. Nearly everything that's happened to me has happened by surprise. All the important things have happened by surprise, and whatever has been happening usually has happened before I had time to expect it. And so when I thought I was in my story or in charge of it, I really have been only on the edge of it, carried along. And then he asked this question. Is this because we are in an eternal story that's happening only partly in time? We are in an eternal story that's only happening partly in time. We're in God's story, the story of covenant faithfulness, the story of redemption, the story of Jesus. How I thank God that I'm part of that story. 
Now I long for you to be part of that story too. Let's pray. God, I pray for us that sometime during this week, by your act, we will enter into the wonder of knowing that we're part of your story. But God, we want to be a good part. We want to be a part that brings glory to the author. So work in us Shape us, help us by your grace to submit to you, to have confidence in your ability and in your love, and then use us for great things. In the name of your Son, our Master and Savior, Jesus.